last time I spoke to you, we looked at three specific things that caused the downfall of Joseph. And I just want to review them briefly before we get into today's message. The first thing was that Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers. And uh, we talked about a few things. I thought uh, this morning, let's just turn quickly to Leviticus 19, which talks about bringing bad reports, true or false. Leviticus 19, verse 16. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Look at the context. Down in verse 18, the bottom of verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So going around telling stories, and I could say, well, do you ever talk about someone? Well, of course, life wouldn't be any fun if you didn't talk about other people. Were they there? Did everything you say about them, was everything you said about them 100% true? 90%? 50%? I won't go any lower. I don't want to embarrass us all but it's certainly not a demonstration of what Christ considered to be one of the great, the greatest commandments in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Giving a bad report can ripple through and destroy the very thing Christianity was designed to produce. Unity. If you want to destroy unity, Start being a talebearer or a gossip, and and you will succeed. What if someone were to analyze how you've judged other people and then judge you by those same principles? It's going to happen one day. As you measure out, so it will be measured out to you. So you better be tremendously circumspect on how you measure out. Because someday you're going to stand before a holy God and he's going to say, this is how you judge someone else. What if I judge you on that? And you will find yourself falling short. So that was the first thing. Second was Jacob showed Joseph favoritism. Of all the people on earth, Jacob should have known better. He was a victim of favoritism. His father loved his brother. And I guess you have to be a son to understand how devastating that could be. We have got to have hearts big enough to understand that we have not all started from the same place. 
in a crowd this size, some of us have come from families where our fathers smiled on us and showed us Christian love. And some of us come from families where our fathers abused us and favored someone else. We have to have hearts big enough to understand that we have not all started at the same place. Some of us have struggled all of our lives to get someone to love us. We wanted someone to understand that there's some dimension about us that's worth appreciating. Like Jacob. One of the most memorable of C.S. Lewis's essays, remember C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, he also wrote an essay while he was professor at Oxford. It's called The Inner Ring. And if you're between the ages of 5 and 100, you should read it. I was going to say between the ages of 12 and 18, because that's where it really begins to apply. But I'm finding myself, even now, um, recognizing the benefits of reading it. It describes our common desire to be accepted within the inner ring of whatever group matters to us at the time. And some of you are thinking, oh, I'm not really guilty of that anymore. Yes, you are. You know how I know? I went to a ministerial meeting. All pastors, we met. We meet for lunch once a month. And I looked around and I thought, there's a lot of wisdom in this room. I would really like to be sitting there with those guys and visiting with them. They're kind of... And I caught myself and I said, am I still doing this? I mean, I remember times in grade eight where I'd be like, boy, I wish I could hang out with those guys. Those are the cool guys. Am I still doing this? I'm 40 something. And I still haven't outgrown this? What is wrong with you, tightrope? <laughs> to feel excluded or out of the inner ring is miserable. Isn't it? Yet the desire to be in can make you say things you would not otherwise say or not say things you should say. This desire to be on the inside of whatever group you aspire to, to join, can affect your relationships at work, in the community, and in the church. Listen to this quote from the essay. C.S. Lewis, as long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You are trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. And some of you are thinking, no, that's too hard. I'm ignoring that advice. I'm going to continue to try to be in the inner ring. Well, I agree with C.S. Lewis. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider, you will remain. So I get this question every now and again. <clears throat> Brought it up very briefly in Sunday school today. Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Some of you are going, I don't even know what the question means. That's fine. 
And that puts a person in a really tough spot, doesn't it? I would be tempted to respond by saying, are you a Paulinian or an Apollosist? Remember when uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, when Paul comes to the church, some of you are saying you are of Paul and some of you are saying you are of Apollos. And some of you said, oh, no, 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 I'm way better than you. I am of Christ. You know what's really sad about answering this question, if it comes up, is that you can get pigeonholed. You can get pigeonholed without discussing a single verse of Scripture. So you answer the question, I'm a Calvinist, or I'm an Arminian. And someone has an idea of what that is, and they put you in it, and might, that might not even be a, your idea of what you believe. And you haven't discussed a single verse of Scripture. And what have we done? Destroyed fellowship by placing labels on people. Showing favoritism to one particular group over another. I'm thankful for the great Christians of history, like Calvin and Arminius and Ridley and Luther. I am. I'm thankful for the great Christians of history. I appreciate what they've done. But none of them were crucified for me. Not one of them was crucified for me. So I don't take their name. I am a Christian because it was Christ crucified for me. And in that, with other Christians, we need to find unity and not show favoritism. And the third thing that began the downfall of Joseph is that he had dreams of supremacy and he told them. It's important that he told them. Who were the dreams for? Answer out loud. Who were the dreams for? For Joseph. Joseph liked the outcome. So he went and told his brothers. By the way, guys, older brothers, those of you with beards, even though I've just got this wispy peach fuzz, you're going to bow to me one day. Mom and dad and you, you're all going to bow down right before me. So there. Those dreams weren't for his brothers. Those dreams are for Joseph, and they didn't give Joseph the whole story, or maybe he wouldn't have been so proud to tell them, would he have? God gave him a glimpse of the end, just as he's given Christians a glimpse of the end. We know what's coming. Have we trusted Christ? We have eternity in heaven waiting for us because of the cross of Christ. But he didn't tell us what was going to happen tomorrow or the day after or next week. And he's just said, look, trust me. The end is going to work out. Trust me. It's going to work out. I'd like to turn to, very briefly to Colossians 2, 18 and 19, and then we'll get into today's message. See, I haven't even started yet. I'm a bit of a rambler. Colossians 2. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 18. And the idea is some dream or some vision or some insight that God has given you. And what does Paul say about it now that we have Christ? Colossians 2, beginning in verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward. 
taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. Don't we live in a society that's angel and demon focused? We forget to talk about Christ because we're so busy talking about what the angels and the enemy is doing. No, it's not about angels and demons. It's about Christ. Christ and Christ alone. Intruding into things which he has not seen. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. He's saying some Christians have so much going on inside their head that they forget to cling to the head. Joseph had these dreams going on inside his head and they were even from God, but they were for Joseph. And his pride made him go tell his brothers and look at the heartache it caused. Cling to the head. Never mind the details. Those are God's business. Let's turn to Genesis, please. Chapter 37. We'll read our passage, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. And get into it, we will. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 18. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 18. Joseph's brothers have gone off to do some herding. Joseph has been sent out to find them. He doesn't find them at first, but then gets directed to where they are and heads toward them. Now, when Joseph's brothers saw Joseph afar off, even, pardon me, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let us and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, 
and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, which they brought it to their fathers, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and he mourned his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, and he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's so much in this brief passage. And we are just humbled and in awe that your mind is revealed to us in passages like this in your scripture and that you have condescended to us to allow us to learn from you. And we are just so grateful for the scriptures that we can look into and learn something about you, learn something about ourselves. And this morning, we ask that your spirit touch each person's heart, that you would convict us of those things that are wrongdoing and show to us how truly evil they are. And in this way, that we would seek forgiveness and desire to follow you with all of our hearts. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you read that passage and not be touched? A father receiving a report. Your son is gone. And he's broken. We're going to skip over the story of Reuben. And trust me, I don't want to skip over it, but I need to. The story of Reuben is fascinating. The oldest brother taking care of his siblings <laughs> to some degree. But I want to look at just two events in this story today. The first event I want to look at is Judah becomes a slave trader. And the second event is Jacob is deceived. Judah becomes a slave trader and Jacob is deceived. We're going to look at both of those because they're intimately linked one with the other. And I think we can learn something about ourselves in Christ looking at these. Can you imagine the gall of Judah? So the brothers have all gathered together and they said, hey, you guys, let's kill him, throw his body into a pit. We're tired of listening to this braggart. And then, an I and then another idea comes to Judah. What do we gain? Look at those words. What do we gain? What was the purpose of what they were going to do? Some sort of gain. I'm going to get something out of this. What do we gain by just killing him? We can get rid of him and get something else. You see their hearts here? Look how Judah's moralizing. Oh, it's really bad to kill. And it's really bad to kill a family member. It's really bad. Let's sell him. Isn't that good? 
So if you take your action and compare it to something worse, you can moralize it and say, it's not so bad after all. Somebody somewhere has done something worse. It would be really bad to kill him. He is our brother. If he wasn't our brother, it'd be fine. He's our brother. It'd be really bad to kill him. Let's sell him as a slave, and then we get money. Do you see the human heart here? Because what I wanted to do is tremendously evil, I'm going to pick the second most evil thing I can do and therefore call it good. Trust me, the second most evil thing is not good. It's the second most evil thing you could possibly come up with. But you will justify in your natural human mind that if you don't do the worst thing, that somehow you are doing good. Maybe you're even doing God's will, you'll tell yourself. And you're lying to yourself because even you don't understand how evil you are. Just like Judah did. We won't kill him. That's really bad. We will be righteous and sell him. And then we'll lie to dad about it. That's pretty good. Can you imagine how wonderful we are that we didn't kill our brother? Tremendous. They sold Joseph then for 20 pieces of silver. Now, we need to, in order to understand this passage, we have to turn to Leviticus. We have to turn to Leviticus 27, otherwise we won't understand this passage in all its fullness. So, young kids, you need to pay attention. I'm going to ask you some questions, and you need to pay close attention. Okay, if you're 10 or under, or somewhere around, let's say 12 or under. Pay close attention. I'm going to ask you some questions. So, we need to read Leviticus chapter 27. We're going to read the first seven verses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation, <clears throat> if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old and to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So this is what we have so far. A man between the ages of 20 and 60 has a redemption price of 50 shekels. Okay, so far so good. If it's a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels because she can't work as hard as the man, right? It's not because she's less valuable. It's her work. Is, is in that time of day, she, she wouldn't be able to do the amount of work. So a female between the ages of 20 and 60 would be their redemption price, 30 pieces of money. And if from five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels and for a female, 10. So Joseph was 17. So they sold him for... How many pieces of silver? 20. That was the right price. Joseph was 17. He was between the ages of 5 and 20. They sold him for 20 shekels. That was the redemption price of Joseph. 
And if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation shall for a male shall be five, and for a female shall be three shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, and it's a male, then your valuation shall be 15, and for a female, 10. So it gives us a list of the redemption price in silver for all age groups. So here's my question for you. Joseph was sold for 20 shekels, right? The standard price of someone between the ages of 5 and 20. How much was Christ sold for? Say again. 30. Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver. What should Christ have been sold for according to this? Say again. 50. Why was Christ sold for a reduced price? The standard should have been 50. Everybody knew it. The redemption price of a male at his at Christ's age was 50 shekels. He was sold for 30. Why? Well, why the discrepancy? Christ needed no redemption for himself. What was valued at 30 shekels? According to that passage, kids, what was valued for 30 shekels? The female. What female was Christ redemption paid? Okay, everyone, older everyone. Who was it that the redemption price was paid? The female. He didn't have to buy it for himself. He was perfect. I heard it the bride, the church. Do you see way back in Genesis God working out who this Messiah was going to be? He didn't need to buy the price for himself. Christ didn't had no redemption price. He was perfect. He was sinless. But there was a bride that needed the redemption price. And that's why he was sold for the reduced price. God saw it way back there. You see the beauty of God's plan? What a tremendous plan God had. The second thing I want to look at is this deception. Folks, you need to pay attention here because this is something that it's going to touch every single one of us right where we are. And your toes are going to hurt after this particular part of the message because all of our toes should hurt here. The brothers attempted to cover their sin with a lie. Because all of us always attempt to cover our sin with a lie. No exceptions. It is always true. You sin in some particular way. That sin produces shame because you know you should never have done that. And so what do you do? You cover it. You lie about it. You know you've done it. Maybe you didn't do it last week, but you know you've done it. You have tried to cover your sin with a lie. Look at what, look at the mind of God in what he's working out in his great salvation. What do the brothers do to make it look like Joseph has been killed? They dip the coat in what? 
What kind of blood? Blood of a goat. Do you remember what happened with Jacob and Esau? You're thinking, yeah, I kind of remember. Do you remember what Joseph, what, do you remember what Jacob had to do in order to deceive his father into thinking that he was a hairy man and not a smooth man? What did he cover his arms and his neck with? Goat skin. A goat had to be killed. And so he could take this covering and cover himself with this goat skin. And what happens all these years later? A goat is killed again. And what Jacob did in deceiving his father is brought home to him. What was the result? What was the goal of Jacob when he was trying to deceive his father? He wanted to be recognized as the older and not the younger. So in his father's mind, what does he do? He switches the older with the younger. I'm going to lie to my father. I'm switching older with younger. And then he goes to work for Laban for seven years. For who? The older or the younger? Who does he get, the older or the younger? Oh, boy. Jacob's sin has come home to roost, hasn't it? In exactly the way that he deceived in order to get gain, it is brought home to him in a very real way. Do you think Jacob was not aware? Wow, I got the older, ugly woman, not the younger, beautiful one. And his deception comes home to roost, doesn't it? Can you see what it cost him? Do you see the price he paid? Oh, the price was high. The price was too high. He believed his son was dead for 20 years. He lived with tremendous grief. Unimaginable grief for those of us that have never lost a child. And for those of us that have, we look at the grief that Jacob must have been enduring as a result of his deception all those years ago. And it came home to roost. And I have a bit of news for you folks. When you use deception to cover up sin, it's coming home to roost. You're not going to get away with it, ever. That is how God has set up his universe. God is good. That means he is moral. And there's a price to pay. Turn, if you would, to close up here to Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32. Some of you know where I'm going already. Numbers chapter 32, beginning in verse 20. Numbers chapter 32, beginning in verse 20. Then Moses said to them, If you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until... He has driven out his enemies from before him 
and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. Now, pay attention to verse 23. But if you do not do so, that means obey God. Then take note. When God says take note, I suggest you take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure of it, folks. Your sin will find you out. So what's the moral of the story? There's two, I think. Let's say three, since I have four minutes. The moral of the story is this. Tell the truth. No matter the cost. Tell the truth. Or at least don't lie. Tell the truth. Or at least don't lie. A second moral might be this. You will not get away with sin. Not in the long run. You will not get away with sin. Not in the long run. There's a price to pay. I want to turn in, uh, for a final passage to Ecclesiastes. That's right, Ecclesiastes. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes that um, jumps out of the page because of the painful truth that's there. Ecclesiastes, please, chapter 8. Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. And I'm going to read three verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and I'm going to read three verses beginning in 11. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Do you see it there? You committed some act and you weren't caught right away, but it was evil. But because you weren't caught, your heart was set to do it again. And you still weren't caught. There was no consequence, was there? It didn't cost you anything. There was no harm. And then you did it again. And then you did it again. And guess what has happened now? Your heart is fully set within you to do evil because there was no consequence right away. And the wisest man in the world says, yeah, there was no consequence right away. And so you did it a hundred times, but it's not going to go well with you. 
going to be a bad scene. And sometimes Christians will say things like, well, if it doesn't catch up to you in this life, it'll get you in the next. But I am, by Scripture, fully convinced that on some level, recognize it or not, on some level, it's going to catch up with you in this life. And then in the next. So what's the third moral of the story? Well, the third moral of the story is, uh, is, is hinted at there in Ecclesiastes, and that is everybody has hearts set to do evil, and there's only one solution to the problem. You should, at least in some glimmering way, realize how wicked you actually are. You're not actually pretty nice. You're not. Do you know how I know? Because God's word says you're not. And you live with guilt pretty regularly, don't you? Things you've done wrong and failed at. And these things have set your heart to do evil continually. What's the solution to the problem? You know there's a problem. You have guilt. Don't lie to me to cover up your sin. We talked about that already. You're not going to get away with that. You had better run to the cross of Christ and cling to it with all your strength. And you had better hope because all your strength won't be enough. <laughs> you had better hope that you run into the arms of the one who, who hung there and have him cling to you because his arms are strong enough. And it's a desperate situation, isn't it? Sin is desperate. You are more desperately wicked than you realize. And it's only by being clung to in the arms of Christ himself that there's any hope for you at all. So flee to the cross, young people. You're not as nice as you look. Flee to the cross and wrap yourself into the arms of Christ and abide there as he clings to you. It's the only answer. It's the only answer. And then, what does he do? He gives you his spirit and empowers you to tell the truth. Or at least, don't lie. And now you've begun a vicious cycle in a good way. You have fled to the arms of Christ. And he's enabled you to begin anew and tell the truth. Or at least, don't lie. What a savior we have who doesn't just give commands and then beat us every time we fail. He gives commands and then he clings to us and empowers us to fulfill what he's asked us to do. What a savior we have. Let's pray.